Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast, and on today's episode... This is one of the most senseless acts of violence in our province's history. We get the latest from Nova Scotia, where a gunman killed at least 16 people and died in a shootout with police at a gas station northwest of Halifax. There are so many questions about motive and why the gunman was apparently wearing a police uniform and driving a vehicle that looked like an RCMP cruiser. And we'll bring you all the latest COVID-19 news from Ottawa. Talk about some of the big events that are being impacted by the shutdown. Realistically, uh, we will not be having those big events where people gather together this summer. That's all coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Let's get an update now from Ottawa. Why? Well, because the House of Commons is set to resume its work today in person. Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, joins us now to talk about this. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, Simi. Yeah, there were negotiations all weekend long about this sitting, whether it should be virtual and so on. So where do we stand this morning? Well, we stand where the House of Commons unanimously decided to put us about five weeks ago, which is by default... The House of Commons will resume sitting in person at 11 o'clock this morning. Now, there were negotiations at the weekend to say, listen, instead of in person, maybe we can do this in a virtual kind of way using technology. And yesterday, the Liberals, the NDP and the Bloc, they came up with this deal that the House would sit one day a week in person and then have three virtual sittings. And the, cons- uh, the Liberal Prime Minister, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, said the Conservatives are being irresponsible by not agreeing to that thing. The Conservatives say, baloney, we're being quite responsible. They would like to have at least uh, three in-person sittings a week. They say, in this country, because of the way bandwidth is in rural and northern areas, uh, it can be tough for MPs to participate in a video conference kind of format. We don't have the rules set up. The House is still studying exactly how to do this. And the Conservatives will be in the House today with a small, very sharply reduced number as we've seen the last two times the House has sat to pass that emergency legislation. So that's where we're at. They're arguing over how many, quote, in-person sittings, but the default position is the current House of Commons rules are it's going to be in-person until all parties come to some other agreement. So 11 o'clock Eastern is when the House opens, question period at 2.15 Eastern. Now, with all that said, Simi, we expect there will be some more negotiations in the next few hours leading up to the House opening, we're going to hear from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and the Bloc leader and uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer all before that 11 o'clock start time. So that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I know that the opposition has also been um, you know, hitting the issue of the World Health Organization pretty hard over the last few days. Is this something that we expect to hear more about during that question period? I think so, and you're right. This is really part of the Conservatives' quote accountability uh, function that they think is important for parliamentarians. They've been they've been wondering what kind of information, when, 
this information has been passed on from the World Health Organization to Canadian health authorities who, who rely on the WHO for advice. Now, the Canadian Conservatives are not nearly so critical as, say, U.S. President Donald Trump, who we know has pretty much blamed the WHO for allowing China to foist this pandemic on the world. The, the, the Canada's Conservatives aren't anywhere near that. They'd probably be more in line with, say, Australia's small-c conservative government, which earlier today actually asked for a formal independent review of how the WHO communicated information about this pandemic, how it gathered information, what role China played in providing the WHO with information. And I should point out uh, the uh, governing conservatives in the United Kingdom also would like an independent inquiry, though they all say that you know the WHO is a very important international organization, particularly right now, but this is, again, part of the, quote, accountability function the Conservatives believe is very important right now. All right, David, thank you very much for the update. Thanks, Amy. Cheers. David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, with the update from Ottawa this morning. So some form of sitting will be happening, could be the first of several this week. And we will, of course, keep you up to date on that. This is Mornings with Simi. I never imagined when I went to bed last night that I would wake up to the horrific news that an active shooter was on the loose in Nova Scotia. This is one of the most senseless acts of violence in our province's history. Words cannot or console the families affected by what has transpired over the last 24 hours. That was Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil yesterday after hearing about one of the largest mass killings in Canadian history and the fact that it took place in a small community in Nova Scotia called Porta Peak. What we know at this point, 17 people are believed to have died in this. Uh, That includes the suspected gunmen, so 16 victims, and one of them a 23-year veteran of the RCMP. Constable Heidi Stevenson leaves behind a husband and two children, but there are still many, many questions, not the least of which, what about all of the other victims? Who were they? What happened? Still so many questions that we're going to be hearing more about in just a moment. So it started, we know at this point, on Saturday night. The primary suspect, 51-year-old Gabriel Wortman. And they believe that uh, this thing started on Saturday night with a phone call to police involving a man with a gun. And now it has ended up, as I said, being one of the largest mass killings in Canadian history. It has even surpassed the death toll of the Ecole Polytechnique massacre in Montreal back in 1989. So let's get to the details. What happened? What do we know? What do we still wait to hear answers about? Sarah Ritchie joins us now, our global news anchor and reporter in Halifax this morning. Sarah, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Do we expect an update from RCMP today? Yeah, we're waiting on an update from RCMP, uh, certainly hoping that they will be able to provide one. They're just at the very beginning stages, as you can imagine, of a very complex and huge investigation, the likes of which Nova Scotia RCMP have simply never seen before. This manhunt lasted more than 12 hours. There are at least 16 people who are believed to be victims of the gunman. He himself was shot dead uh, by police. We know that there are multiple locations spread over about a 100-kilometer span of rural Nova Scotia. There are just so many unanswered questions, and we know police are are obviously trying to uh, get some answers today and into the coming weeks. Okay, so can we back up a little bit and tell me how it started? When did we first hear about this? 
Yeah, absolutely. So this started in a little village in Nova Scotia called Port-a-Pic. That's about an hour and a half outside Halifax. It's on the shore of the Bay of Fundy. A tiny little place with about a 100 year-round residents. So you can imagine just how close-knit this community is. People there tell us that they heard gunshots starting at about 11 o'clock Saturday night. They also saw multiple structure fires. It's believed at least three houses were on fire that evening. That kicked off this huge police operation which lasted well into the morning on Sunday and, as I mentioned earlier, ended with police shooting the suspected gunman dead in the parking lot of a gas station in a place called Enfield, Nova Scotia. Now, that's about a half hour outside of Halifax. In between those two places were numerous crime scenes scattered over this roughly 100-kilometer span of a very rural part of the province. And so that gives you a sense of just how huge the scope of this investigation is going to be. When we got an update yesterday from RCMP at 6 o'clock local time, they said at that time there was believed to be at least 10 people dead, but they didn't have a final count because they weren't sure exactly how many crime scenes they had yet to find. So obviously uh, a lot still to come, a lot Mm -hmm. of questions still to be answered here. And what do we know at this point about the man police say is responsible for this? Not a lot. Um, His name is Gabriel Wortman. He's 51 years old. He's a denturist who has a clinic or had a clinic in the Halifax area. We know that he owns some property in Portapique, in that area where this whole incident began. Uh, He wasn't known to police before all of this happened, but there was certainly a level of preparation and planning involved in this terrible attack. Um, At one point, RCMP warned people in Nova Scotia that Wortman was driving a mocked-up RCMP cruiser, a vehicle that he had made to look like an RCMP cruiser and wearing what looked like an RCMP uniform. So a very disturbing element to all of this. And it's unclear at this point exactly how that may have helped him to evade police or how it may have uh, affected the investigation. What we know for sure is that that suggests there was a level of pre-planning involved in this. But police said even though they think it's not a random act, they do think that some of the victims of this attack were targeted randomly. They don't believe Wortman had any connection to some of those people at all. Hmm, And we know about RCMP officer um, Heidi Stevenson at this point, but do we know anything about the other victims? Those stories are really just beginning to emerge here in Nova Scotia. Our team is is working to put put that together to piece together a clear picture of of who's been impacted by this. I can tell you for sure, uh, Constable Stevenson, as you mentioned, a 23-year veteran of the force. She was also a wife, a mother of two. She was a former rugby coach, so she leaves behind an awful lot of people who will mourn her loss. Uh, We can tell you as well that the Nova Scotia Teachers Union has confirmed this morning that a DeBert Elementary School teacher by the name of Lisa McCulley is dead. She was a grade three and four teacher in the community of DeBert, which is not too far away from port um, We don't know her connection to Wortman, if there is one at this point, but we can tell you that certainly there will be a lot of uh, you know, students and former students and teachers and colleagues across the province grieving her loss. You know, so many families in this province are just starting to grieve at this point. And, you know, it's worth pointing out as well that this is all happening in the backdrop of the coronavirus pandemic, which means we're in a state of emergency in this province. People cannot travel into Nova Scotia from outside the province unless they're, you know, going to head straight into self-isolation. We're not able to gather in groups of more than five. So as people are just starting to mourn here, um, that mourning is really, you know, being 
thrown into turmoil. Yeah. It's not the way we would normally do this. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah, for the update this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That's Sarah Ritchie, Global News anchor and reporter in Halifax, giving us the latest on the shooting in Portapique, uh, Nova Scotia, where 17 people are dead, 16 of them victims, one uh, believed to be the gunman in all of this. And, you know, the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, has been talking about this, too. And she told uh, Global News' Mercedes Stevenson that at this point, police don't know the suspect's motive, but she said that it may have shifted at some point from the initial stages uh, turning to something more random later on. That is just part of the investigation, which is going to be a huge one. As Sarah mentioned, there are countless actual crime scenes here. They're still trying to figure out exactly how many they are talking about. So we do expect an update on that situation later today from the RCMP and the government in Nova Scotia. And we will keep you posted on that, of course. This is Mornings with Simi. Following multiple 911 calls, Nova Scotia RCMP members responded to a firearms call to a Portapic residence in Colchester County. Now, that was a member of the Nova Scotia RCMP yesterday. He was talking about the first reports they received of what has now become one of the deadliest mass killings in Canadian history. It is a killing spree from the small community of Portapique that has left 17 people dead. Now, that includes the suspected shooter, uh, one of the victims, also a veteran member of the RCMP. So let's get the latest information on this now. We're joined by journalist Nicole Monroe. She works with the Chronicle Herald in Halifax. Good morning, Nicole. Thank you for being here. Morning. Thanks for having me. What is the latest that you're hearing about how this all got started? Um, as you can understand, the investigation is still pretty early on, so there are a lot of questions that we don't really have answers to. Um, and the RCMP are holding a news conference today at 2 p.m. Um, Atlantic time, so hopefully we'll get some more answers there. Okay, so again, the initial reports, it sounds like, came in and and it went on for quite some time before it was resolved, didn't it? Yeah, so from the sounds of things, um, started around 11.30 p.m. Saturday in Portapique, um, which is a small Nova Scotia community. Um, and it actually ended about 12 hours later in Enfield, which is about 90 kilometers uh, away from the original point where those calls came in. And what kind of information uh, have has the media been provided with so far? Has it been a bit of a fight to get some details? Um, the details have been a little scarce, um, but understandably there's multiple scenes uh, across Nova Scotia that they're processing. So uh, victims found uh, different in different areas, um, and those scenes are taking time. So... Um, we don't have a lot of details as of right now, but mm-hmm. we're hoping to get some as they come forward. Can you tell us what we've learned so far about the victims? Yeah. Um, so, uh, as, as many know, an officer uh, was killed in the line of duty, um, as well as we found out that two nurses, uh, one um, licensed nurse practitioner and um, a continuing care assistant were among those victims, uh, an elementary school teacher, um, a man that worked at the fire brigade at the airport for more than 30 years, um, a woman that was a denturist in Shubenacadie, uh, also part of the um, also part of the dance community, uh, a family of three, uh, so t- 
two two adults and a teenager. Um, a, a couple that lived out in Port of Pic, um, another couple that was married that also was in Port of Pic. Um, so those details are all coming through, and it's all a lot of people um, really just wanting to talk about them uh, positively on social media and have them remembered in, in that way, as opposed to as what happened yesterday. Right. Is is all that information though about the the victims here coming from social media and and family and loved ones talking about them? Um, it's a bit of both. So um, Vaughn Canada released the information on the continuing care assistant and the nurse. Um, and RCMP released the information, as you know, of the uh, officer that was killed. Uh, the teachers' union came forward talking about the elementary school teacher, um, and then um, actually one of the people was my dad's cousin, so I received information from him through family, um, and everyone, yeah, family members, friends, just kind of coming forward to talk about their loved ones on social media is kind of where other information is coming from. Oh, I'm so sorry about that, Nicole. I mean, it really does sound like, given that it was such a small community, everybody must be touched by this. Yeah, so I live in Halifax, but um, I'm actually from Truro, which, and I have a cottage out near Portapique. So um, it was started out with me reading a high school, uh, someone I went to high school with. It was their, their relatives, two of them. Um, and then it just kind of more connections kind of came through. And it's just, although Portapique is small and some people may not have known where that was before this all happened, um, it's affected a lot of Nova Scotians, um, especially those close to the community. How small is Portapique? Portapique is a very small community. I don't have those specific numbers, but it would be like, you know, everyone on the street would know each other. Um, and Truro, which is only like a 20, 25 minute drive away, those people all knew each other. I mean, people in Portapique, they go to high school in Truro, um, which is where I went to school. Um, so everyone knows each other, even though they don't live there. And what do we know at this point then, Nicole, about the person police say is responsible for this? Um, so the details are um, not great about him that we know. Um we do know that he had a few dentist clinics in uh, HRM area, and his name was registered to a couple properties down in Portapique. But uh, I haven't been personally focusing too much on him. That hasn't really been my angle, and I know a lot of people as well. Um, although they do, there does need to be some understanding behind things. They're trying to not focus on him as much, also. I can imagine. Yeah, you want to focus more on the on the victims here. So you said a press conference coming up uh, just in a couple of hours there um, and just wait for more information at this point. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I Like yesterday, they, a lot of people had questions and uh, Chris Leather, the RCMP officer, said, you know, it's it's too early. It's it's very spread out across. Nova Scotia, and it lasted for 12 hours. So hopefully have some more answers today at that news conference. Hopefully. All right, Nicole, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Check that date. It is April the 20th, which, of course, for 2020 means something completely different than it did, uh, you know, in years past. Let's talk about that this morning with the help of our Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, it seems kind of funny to think, doesn't it, that this time, typically, 
we would be going on and on and on about the controversy of using Sunset Park for the 420 celebrations. It is always the topic of conversation that leads up to today. And then, of course, what's the conversation that follows today, typically? Uh, Who's going to clean up and pay for it? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's usually the way it goes. We're not having those conversations this year because, of course like most other events, it's been cancelled. Yeah, I had quite a few emails last week, actually, from people. uh, It's like like they didn't hear the news, I guess, originally that it had been cancelled because they wanted to know, my goodness, what's going to happen? Are people going to enforce them? So I took the time to write all those people back and say, no, no, you may have missed it, but it was cancelled very early on, like more than a month ago, I would say. Yeah, I remember that too. Dana Larson, one of the organizers, came forward pretty quickly and said that this event wouldn't be happening this year, and rightfully so. I mean, they get crowds. I think last year was somewhere around 60,000 people that came out to Sunset Beach to wreck the grass and smoke some weed. So yeah. <laughs> this year, this year that won't be happening. But with that said, and maybe some, some other people will have a concern similar to this, that it's going to be a beautiful day. This is Vancouver. Are we going to have people exactly. gathering on the beach to smoke some weed? Well, it's highly likely that some people not associated with this event, but just taking it upon themselves may still go down to Sunset Beach for, I don't know, tradition's sake to go hang out with their buddies and break those social distancing rules and celebrate their own little 420 events. So police are aware of that and they said that they will be monitoring the beach to make sure that they're reminding people again that there are social distancing rules and I guess bring your own joint your own joint and, and don't pass your joint to your buddy, I guess is how you would apply social distancing rules to four twenty. I don't know. I guess so and I and I, I do hope they <laughs> I do hope they monitor that because, I mean, yesterday the weather was quite nice and, and took a drive down that way. It happened to be on my way home um, and it was busy. And so I thought, boy, mm. I don't know. What are you going to do on a day like today when normally people would be gathering? Well, and typically organizers would be crazy to see the weather that they're going to see today. I mean, beautiful, sunny, 17 degrees. This is perfect weather for that event when often, you know, it it does take place in April, it can be plagued with rain, and that causes a lot of problems for organizers. And plus, you know, it's just not great for any kind of outdoor events. So, you know, they'd probably be overjoyed to see the weather that they're going to see today when, ironically, the the event has been has been cancelled in the end. But if you still do want to celebrate 420, they're doing a virtual 420 instead. So I guess there's some pot TV channels and so forth that you can uh, go and watch things happen online. I I imagine they'll have musicians and everything else. So they are doing it like many other events. They've moved it online. They're doing sort of a virtual thing instead. All right. Some other events, though, that we kind of have gotten used to, part of the fabric of Vancouver. Uh, The Sun Run was supposed to be yesterday. I didn't realize that. I kept thinking it was still coming up. Yeah, and this one's a bit controversial, too. Uh, I have some friends that were supposed to run in the Sun Run, and they kept saying, you know, what's going on here with the refunds? Because from what we know, the Sun Run will not be offering refunds, and they're offering a fee that you can pay in addition to the entry that you've already paid that you will not be getting back in order to transfer your registration to next year. So people are going, hold on a second here. Not only am I not getting my money back for the event that I'm no longer able to run in because organizers canceled it, of course, because of COVID-19, but now you're going to charge me to transfer that registration to next year, yeah, too. Yeah, that doesn't so seem right. So a lot right. of people were... 
Yeah, we're upset about that yesterday, and I saw a lot of chatter online about it as well. Uh, one fellow wrote, I hope you spent our entry fee wisely. Uh, another person wrote, you know, please donate the funds to first responders, saying that they wouldn't purchase from one of the sponsors of the event because they're so upset about how things have, have gone with these, you know, the lack of a lack of refunds. But I think the other thing that people are upset about, because, you know, the entry fee, look, it was... If, 50 bucks for the early bird registration, 60 bucks plus GST and fees for the regular price registration. So, you know, no one's breaking the bank here. But I think it was the lack of transparency with Sunrun organizers. People were saying, well, reach out to us and tell us what's going on. You know, you said there'd be more information in the future. And we haven't received any more information in the future. You said there'd be a T-shirt at least. I mean, you printed all these T-shirts, I assume. Am I even going to get my T-shirt in the mail after I spent my 50 bucks on registering for this race? Or just tell... they've heard nothing. Yeah, just tell people like, okay, we want to roll you over for next year, but you need to reconfirm with us that you're going to do that. And if we don't hear from you, then we are going to sell that again for next year, right? Because they can't just roll everybody over because that would mean the next year sold out and nobody knew would get to participate. But yeah, communication here, I guess, would be the key. I'm curious to hear how next year's event goes, because I think a a few people have been burned by the communication. Look, everybody gets it, that events are being cancelled. We know that events are being cancelled. We know that some tickets, you know, weren't sure there's going to be some issues getting your money back. But you just, you hope for good communication with the organizers, and then you don't, you're not left with that sour taste in your mouth, right? Right. So speaking of, so those are spring events that have been cancelled. Summer events we're hearing are also going to be cancelled. We know Pride Parade's not Mm -hmm. going to happen uh, from what we heard, and also doesn't sound like much of a any other yeah and this one's kind of a bummer for for families and I, I mean i remember being a kid semi growing up here and going to the peony or going to playland i mean that was tradition in vancouver yeah. and you might only go because you know you and i both grew up in, in the suburbs i grew up in in north delta so maybe it's only every other summer that you actually oh no get your we went every to year drop you off in the oh did you every year yeah oh, see tradition it was my grandmother tradition. couldn't even speak english and she had to go every year to the peony and she had to buy tickets for that peony prize home she loved Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. She looked forward to it every year. Uh, We're actually going to be talking with Laura Balance about that, Nikki. So thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Realistically, uh, we will not be having those big events where people gather together this summer. This is going to be, um, that is a, a, a much riskier prospect than ever before. Now that, of course, is Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about the summer that we have ahead of us. Today, of course, is 420, April the 20th. And normally we would see and be talking about the tens of thousands of people who would be gathering this afternoon just here in Vancouver. 
But COVID-19 has changed everything. The Peony is an iconic Vancouver attraction, but this is going to be a pretty tough year for them. So we wanted to talk more about what that may look like. Is there still going to be some form of a Peony? Joining us now, representing the Peony, is Laura Balance. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me on. How long have you been preparing for kind of what Dr. Henry had to say this weekend? Well, I think, um, you know, like every event in this country, we've been uh, modeling different scenarios as we've moved through the last five to six weeks as as a nation, to be honest. I think what seemed um, very far away for many of us um, a month and a half or two months ago Uh, really began to hit home. And as we work through the process of uh, modeling different scenarios, not only for our fair, but for Playland and our year-round events, um, I think that the organization itself has always proven its resiliency. And I think that the group of people in charge of the P&E have done a great job anticipating where we might be going but I don't think there's anybody that can say that they truly have the crystal ball on on what was going to happen or what is going to happen. So we continue through the process of trying to look at what might be possible and where we might be able to go from here. Do we know what that might look like? Like, are we still talking about some form of a PE this summer? I think we're looking at what might be possible in trying to anticipate where the um, health advice might be four and a half months from now. So, you know, the p is truly British Columbia's end of summer tradition. Uh, for 110 years, we, we have marked that end of summer uh, for our province. And trying to um, work with what is best practices and protocols today may look very different four and a half months from now. But I think it's fair to say that we recognize that the fair as we've known it, it will not be possible in 2020. And so whether or not there is the ability to, um, you know, put together something that does look different, I think that's what we're really looking at now. And I'm very hopeful for because, you know, the peony for a lot of us represents that end of summer tradition. It's mm. candy floss, mini donuts and roller coasters. But I think it's really important to recognize that it also is the largest employer of youth in this province. It's 9,500 direct and indirect jobs. It's $200 million in economic spinoff into our region, 85 of that for the fair alone. So there is big impact and there's big implication. And I know from working there for so many years, the implication to small business in this province, there's so many families that depend on the fair and and also because my job in, in working with all of you, I get to work with these young people that depend on the fair. And I can tell you, Simi, that they've been calling me, they've been calling my coworkers at the P&E by the hundreds, uh, asking for us to try and, and come up with something so that they can uh, get some employment right. this year. So is it possible then to kind of push these decisions off for another month or two and maybe a scaled down version? Like, what are we looking at here? I think that's, you know, we're hoping that we might, uh, as the world continues to change day by day and hour by hour, we might be able to 
uh, envision some way to put forward something. It'll be a different something than, than what we've known, but something that will allow us to still employ people and to generate that economic impact and to generate those jobs for families across BC. And so that's that's what we're working for. I should say it's very important. We're not going to go against health advice. We're going to work in lockstep with, with health authorities and government but I think we need to do our obligation as an entity is to is to look at what might be possible, right? And and be hopeful for that. There, there's really no blueprint for this, is there, Laura? Because like all the theme parks all over the world, Disneyland, Disney World, Universal, you name it, even they haven't come up with a way to open while maintaining social distancing. One hundred percent. And you know there is no blueprint. You are entirely correct. We are doing the best we can, just like every other event. It's really important for people to know that the PE is a not-for-profit organization. So we don't receive government subsidy. And in fact, we invest about $7 million back into our site every year. Um, and so there is no ability to, um, you know, there is no stopgap as far as subsidy. And so we're hopeful to come come forward with something that will allow us to remain resilient. We are very focused on that. I can tell you that. The organization itself um, believes that. And and I know in my heart we have survived the Great Depression. We've survived two world wars. And, and following those wars, we've been the place where British Columbia has come back to wrap its arms around each other and celebrate. And I can tell you that this is a scrappy group of people. We are not going to allow COVID to take us down. And we have heard, I spent all weekend taking phone calls and emails from people that associate me personally with the fair from every corner of this province who who are saying that they, they've heard the news and they want us to keep fighting. And, and that is our commitment to, to the people of British Columbia. We're right. the oldest event in this province and we're the largest we're the biggest ticketed event and we're going to continue to fight to be that for the next 110 years. So that means what starting today, the planning begins for some kind of scaled down socially distanced version. I can tell you that the planning has been going on about 18 hours a day, every day for the last six weeks. And uh, like the rest of the world, as things change, that plan needs to change. And, and we've been working hard at that. We are hopeful today, uh, certainly when we heard Dr. Henry's comments on the weekend, uh, I think the reality that, that the fair as we've known it was not going to, to be able to um, come to fruition this year. I personally, I, I felt we were four and a half months away, so, so there was four and a half months potentially, uh, or at least several weeks uh, to, to re-envision where we might get. Right. But hearing those comments, I think the reality hit hit all of us um, that we would not be able to stage the fair, even with uh, current social distancing, distancing protocols. So now we have to work on that plan. I don't want to call it a plan B because it's probably plan Y by now. <laughs> so when would you normally start hiring? When would all of the ramping up normally oh, begin? It would all begin now. We would be in the last week, we would have uh, certainly hired about 1,500 people for Playland. And keep in mind, although we're best known for the fair, we, we operate three very different business streams. And one of them is Playland Amusement Park, which is such an employ- important employer in this province as well and is the largest family event in the province. 
And so uh, Playland would be uh, on the verge of opening, um, and we would also be simultaneously hiring another 1,000 people in, the, in this week uh, for fair time as we move towards that 9,500 um, direct and indirect jobs as we, we move into the summer. So those things are all on hold. So when do you think there might be an update? You know, I wish I could say. Uh, I wish there was a timeline, and I think that's the uncertainty. I, I get to work with a lot of the greatest events in this country, and I think finding that moment uh, where you can actually make a definitive decision is what we're all struggling with, And um, because nobody wants to cancel their event, and so many of them, particularly in this province, are self-funded. They're either funded through small private business or they're funded through... Uh, great not-for-profits and so the event is what funds the year-round operations and so these um, organizations large and small are incredibly challenged because it won't it's not a matter of just postponing the event in in many cases it is the lifeblood Mm -hmm. of that organization and so I think everybody is trying to find what um, what things could be and then to pick a date where we go, okay, now we have to go to this secondary plan. Because if we knew that the world was going to come back on July 1st or August 1st or whatever that date was, it would make it much easier right. to plan. But as we all know, it's very fluid. Oh, that is so true. All right, Laura, we'll keep in touch then. Thank you. And thank you guys for your support and all your listeners. We know that we've been partners with this station for back since since day one. And so we thank you and we thank your listeners for their incredible support. Well, people want to see that PE in one form or another. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Laura, thank you. Laura Balance, Media thank Relations you. with the PE. It is not uh, gone. It was not cancelled for this year, but it won't be the fair that we're used to seeing. So how do you make that happen? This is Mornings with Simi. So we were just talking with Von Palmer of the Vancouver Sun about the press conference that Mike Farnworth, the public safety minister, had yesterday. This had to do with something that really gets under people's skin, something that just drives us crazy during this time. That is people who are reselling medical supplies and they're really ratcheting up those prices. So what did he have to say about that? Have a listen. We've been fielding complaints through partners at Consumer Protection BC of instances of price gouging for the things that we may require to stay healthy. That's why, effective immediately, the province is enabling police to issue $2,000 violation tickets for these shameful practices. For price gouging and the reselling of medical supplies and other essential goods, during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Now, we've heard lots of stories about this, right? We've seen Richmond RCMP pull people over. We've seen Delta police arrest people or charge people, I should say, as a result of this. And it just bugs us to no end when we know that personal protective equipment is so important right now and that there is a shortage uh, sometimes for frontline workers that somebody would think that this is a good time to mark the price up. Uh, So now, as you heard the public safety minister say there, they're giving municipal the ability to crack down on that and levy $2,000 fines right away on the spot to people who are busted for this. Now, Rob Gioloretto is the CEO of Consumer Protection BC, and he explained what the role of that organization is in counteracting price gouging. We're here to take 
people's complaints. We're here to be the intake vehicle for all the complaints that people are seeing around the province that would be considered price gouging. And price gouging, as defined by the minister himself, is just really an unconscionable price in relationship in relation rather to other sales prices of similar goods in similar areas through similar transactions. And we've been seeing quite a few of uh, that kind of marketplace activity, unfortunately, um, over the last couple of weeks. All right. So just how big of a problem is price gouging? Well, he says they've received about 1,500 complaints over the past six weeks. Over 600 of those are specific to personal protective equipment and to paper products, uh, most notably, of course, toilet paper. And I think when you start to see the complaints and read the complaints that we get, these are really difficult human times. And certainly when you see about uh, care workers who are taking care of elderly people in their homes um, who have compromised immune systems and retailers are charging them, uh, you know, $400 for uh, 50 masks, those types of things just can't happen. And so it's certainly enough of 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 a problem in the marketplace And we really do congratulate um, our provincial partners in in taking this step so that we can try to eliminate it. All right. So here's the thing for you. If you are out shopping and you see something that you go, you know what, that is not the regular price. Like that looks like price gouging to me. What can you do about that? Okay, here's what you do. You go on to Consumer Protection BC's website, okay, and you report the following information your name and contact information, so for possible follow-up, the type of product being sold, the new price, and if you're able to find it, the previous price as well, if possible. Any evidence that you may have, if possible, such as a picture or a receipt. So in other words, if you see something that you think is being uh, is price gouging, then take a picture of it for sure. And then also include the name of the business and the address, including the city. And then they will uh, pass that information on the website, consumerprotectionbc.ca. And I'm sure there are lots of those types of issues out there. If you've seen anything like that too, let me know too, so I can pass that on to people. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We are expecting a statement from TransLink this morning on the news that potentially layoffs are looming. Uh, We're going to talk more about that now with the help of Gavin McGarrigal, who is the Western Regional Director of Unifor, representing many of the bus drivers, of course, at Coast Mountain Bus Company. Gavin, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Simi. Now, you gave us a bit of a warning about this on Friday when we talked to you about layoffs of up to 70%. Are you still hearing that number? Yeah, I mean, the employer hasn't been very specific about numbers at all. They presented us late last week with a document that would uh, seek to clear the way, uh, relax requirements under the Labour Code and the collective agreement, uh, but it would clear the way for really unlimited layoffs. And uh, they, they weren't specific <clears throat> about uh, the exact numbers, but certainly uh, when I spoke to uh, Kevin Desmond uh, last week, uh, that was uh, the range of options he was looking at. And we're hearing from various managers across the system uh, that it could be a 1,000 or more more uh, transit workers that uh, receive layoff notices uh, either today or this week. So you have gotten no update since then? I mean, we talked to you Friday. You sent out the memo to employees uh, last night. You're telling me there's been no update since then? 
No, there hasn't. As I said, we got this document late uh, late last week. Uh, we, you know, ended up uh, discussing it amongst ourselves, and, and at the end of the day, said, you know, we're not going to cooperate in this budget fiasco. This is something that the senior levels of government need to sort out. They need to sort it out yesterday. I mean, there is simply uh, no way in the middle of this pandemic that we should be talking about laying off any transit workers at all because of the social distancing requirements. Uh, there are less people on the buses, so you need every available safe bus on the road to protect the driver and the passengers. So we informed the employer and senior executives uh, on Saturday afternoon that that we weren't going to cooperate and in fact we were going to use uh, every means possible to, to block any talk of layoffs and uh, we're going to reserve all of our options. So uh, we're doing that and uh, you know it's time to get this uh, off the table. You know it's interesting you see the federal government Sammy, uh, talking about uh, you know uh, millions of dollars that are going to private companies such as Air Canada's and, and other through the wage subsidy and yet we're sitting here in the middle of this uh, pandemic talking about laying off public sector workers, uh, workers who, in fact, are transporting the very workers that we all need to make sure that uh, we can get through this pandemic, whether it's people needing health care, people needing groceries, people uh, that are, you know, doing cleaning and a whole bunch of other uh, essential uh, jobs. We, you know, we represent people at Kruger in New Westminster who make toilet paper. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't have options other than the bus. If there's no bus, they don't get around. If they don't get around, they don't provide the service to the people who need it and this whole thing uh, just becomes more dangerous for everyone both for the bus drivers who will then have to face uh, more crowded buses and the passengers who will also uh, have a tough time getting on a bus that has proper social distancing so this is just uh, a really irresponsible move and uh, you know I don't think the public is interested in any kind of a political bun fight between the different levels of government it's simply get it done get it done now and take this threat off the table immediately. But do you do expect those layoff notices to happen today? That's what we've been uh, advised by the employer, that uh, that's what they're working on, uh, that they've uh, purchased, uh, you know, okay. thousands of registered mail envelopes ready to go. And, you know, we'll, we'll see uh, what those notices look like and, okay. and whether or not we believe they're in compliance with the law. And, and we'll, we'll take further action from there. All right, Gavin, thank you. Yeah, thanks again, Simi. Gavin McGarrigal with the update there, the Western Regional Director of Unifor representing Coast Mountain bus drivers expecting layoff notices today. We will have more for you. TransLink statement expected on that in the next couple of hours as well. Still ahead for us in the next hour. Let's get an update now from Ottawa. Why? Well, because the House of Commons is set to resume its work today in person. Global's Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken joins us now to talk about this. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, Simi. Yeah, there were negotiations all weekend long about this sitting, whether it should be virtual and so on. So where do we stand this morning? Well, we stand where the House of Commons unanimously decided to put us about five weeks ago, which is by default, the House of Commons will resume sitting in person at 11 o'clock this morning. Now, there were negotiations in the weekend to say, listen, instead of in person, maybe we can do this in a virtual kind of way using technology. And yesterday, the Liberals, the NDP and the Bloc, they came up with this deal that the House would sit one day a week in person and then have three virtual sittings. And the, cons- uh, the Liberal Prime Minister, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, said the Conservatives are being irresponsible by not agreeing to that thing. The Conservatives say, baloney, we're being quite responsible. They would like to have at least uh, three in-person sittings a week. They say in this country, because of the way bandwidth is in rural and northern areas, uh, it can be tough for MPs to participate in a video conference kind of format. We don't have the rules set up. The House is still studying exactly how to do this. And the Conservatives will be in the House today with a small, very sharply reduced number 
as we've seen the last two times the House has sat to pass that emergency legislation. So that's where we're at. They're arguing over how many, quote, in-person sittings, but the default position is the current House of Commons rules are it's going to be in person um, until all parties come to some other agreement. So 11 o'clock Eastern is when the House opens. Question period at 2.15 Eastern. Now, with all that said, Sammy, uh, we expect there will be some more negotiations in the next few hours leading up to the House opening. We're going to hear from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and the Bloc leader and uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer all before that 11 o'clock start time. So that's where we're at. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I know that the opposition has also been, um, you know, hitting the issue of the World Health Organization pretty hard over the last few days. Is this something that we expect to hear more about during that question period? I think so, and you're right. This is really part of the Conservatives' quote accountability uh, function that they think is important for parliamentarians. They've been they've been wondering what kind of information when. Uh, this information has been passed on from the World Health Organization to Canadian health authorities who, who rely on the WHO for advice. Now, the Canadian Conservatives are not nearly so critical as, say, U.S. President Donald Trump, who we know has pretty much blamed the WHO for allowing China to force this pandemic on the world. The, the, the Canada's Conservatives aren't anywhere near that. They'd probably be more in line with, say, Australia's small-c conservative government, which earlier today actually asked for a formal independent review of how the WHO communicated information about this pandemic, how it gathered information, what role China played in providing the WHO with information. And I should point out uh, the uh, governing conservatives in the United Kingdom also would like an independent inquiry, though they all say that you know the WHO is a very important international organization, particularly right now, but this is, again, part of the, quote, accountability function the Conservatives believe is very important right now. All right, David, thank you very much for the update. Thanks, Emmy. Cheers. David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, with the update from Ottawa this morning. So some form of sitting will be happening, could be the first of several this week, and we will, of course, keep you up to date on that. This is Mornings with Simi. I never imagined when I went to bed last night that I would wake up to the horrific news that an active shooter was on the loose in Nova Scotia. This is one of the most senseless acts of violence in our province's history. Words cannot or console the families affected by what has transpired over the last 24 hours. That was Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil yesterday after hearing about one of the largest mass killings in Canadian history and the fact that it took place in a small community in Nova Scotia called Porta Peak. What we know at this point, 17 people are believed to have died in this. Uh, that includes the suspected gunmen, so 16 victims, and one of them, a 23-year veteran of the RCMP. Constable Heidi Stevenson leaves behind a husband and two children, but there are still many, many questions, not the least of which, what about all of the other victims? Who were they? What happened? Still so many questions that we're going to be hearing more about in just a moment. So it started, we know at this point, on Saturday night. The primary suspect, 51-year-old Gabriel Wortman. And they believe that uh, this thing started on Saturday night with a phone call to police involving a man with a gun. And now it has ended up, as I said, being one of the largest mass killings in Canadian history. It has even surpassed the death toll of the Ecole Polytechnique massacre in Montreal back in 1989. 
So let's get to the details. What happened? What do we know? What do we still wait to hear answers about? Sarah Ritchie joins us now, our global news anchor and reporter in Halifax this morning. Sarah, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Do we expect an update from RCMP today? Yeah, we're waiting on an update from RCMP, uh, certainly hoping that they will be able to provide one. They're just at the very beginning stages, as you can imagine, of a very complex and huge investigation, the likes of which Nova Scotia RCMP have simply never seen before. This manhunt lasted more than 12 hours. There are at least 16 people who are believed to be victims of the gunman. He himself was shot dead uh, by police. We know that there are multiple locations spread over about a 100 kilometer span of rural Nova Scotia. There are just so many unanswered questions and we know police are are obviously trying to uh, get some answers today and into the coming weeks. Okay, so can we back up a little bit and tell me how it started? When did we first hear about this? Yeah, absolutely. So this started in a little village in Nova Scotia called Port-a-Pic. That's about an hour and a half outside Halifax. It's on the shore of the Bay of Fundy. A tiny little place with about a 100 year-round residents. So you can imagine just how close-knit this community is. People there tell us that they heard gunshots starting at about 11 o'clock Saturday night. They also saw multiple structure fires. It's believed at least three houses were on fire that evening. That kicked off this huge police operation which lasted well into the morning on Sunday and, as I mentioned earlier, ended with police shooting the suspected gunman dead in the parking lot of a gas station in a place called Enfield, Nova Scotia. Now, that's about a half hour outside of Halifax. In between those two places were numerous crime scenes scattered over this roughly 100-kilometer span of a very rural part of the province. And so that gives you a sense of just how huge the scope of this investigation is going to be. When we got an update yesterday from RCMP at 6 o'clock local time, they said at that time there was believed to be at least 10 people dead, but they didn't have a final count because they weren't sure exactly how many crime scenes they had yet to find. So obviously uh, a lot still to come, a lot of Mm -hmm. questions still to be answered here. And what do we know at this point about the man police say is responsible for this? Not a lot. Um, His name is Gabriel Wortman. He's 51 years old. He's a denturist who has a clinic or had a clinic in the Halifax area. We know that he owns some property in Port-a-Pic in that area where this whole incident began. Uh, He wasn't known to police before all of this happened, but there was certainly a level of preparation and planning involved in this terrible attack. Um, At one point, RCMP warned people in Nova Scotia that Wortman was driving a mocked-up RCMP cruiser, a vehicle that he had made to look like an RCMP cruiser and wearing what looked like an RCMP uniform. So a very disturbing element to all of this. And it's unclear at this point exactly how that may have helped him to evade police or how it may have uh, affected the investigation. What we know for sure is that that suggests there was a level of pre-planning involved in this. But police said even though they think it's not a random act, they do think that some of the victims of this attack were targeted randomly. They don't believe Wortman had any connection to some of those people at all. Hmm, And we know about RCMP officer um, Heidi Stevenson at this point, but do we know anything about the other victims? Those stories are really just beginning to emerge here in Nova Scotia. Our team is is working to put 
put that together to piece together a clear picture of of who's been impacted by this. I can tell you for sure, uh, Constable Stevenson, as you mentioned, a 23-year veteran of the force. She was also a wife, a mother of two. She was a former rugby coach, so she leaves behind an awful lot of people who will mourn her loss. Uh, we can tell you as well that the Nova Scotia Teachers Union has confirmed this morning that a DeBert elementary school teacher by the name of Lisa McCulley is dead. She was a grade three and four teacher in the community of DeBert, which is not too far away from Portapic. Um, we don't know her connection to Wortman, if there is one at this point, but we can tell you that certainly there will be a lot of, uh, you know, students and former students and teachers and colleagues across the province grieving her loss. You know, so many families in this province are just starting to grieve at this point. And, I, you know, it's worth pointing out as well that this is all happening in the backdrop of the coronavirus pandemic which means we're in a state of emergency in this province. People cannot travel into Nova Scotia from outside the province unless they're you know, going to head straight into self-isolation. We're not able to gather in groups of more than five. So as people are just starting to mourn here, um, that mourning is really you know, being thrown into turmoil. Yeah. It's not the way we would normally do this. All right, thank you so much, Sarah, for the update this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That's Sarah Ritchie, Global News anchor and reporter in Halifax, giving us the latest on the shooting in Portapique, uh, Nova Scotia, where 17 people are dead, 16 of them victims, one uh, believed to be the gunman in all of this. And, you know, the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, has been talking about this, too. And she told uh, Global News' Mercedes Stevenson that at this point, police don't know the suspect's motive, but she said that it may have shifted at some point from the initial stages uh, turning to something more random later on. That is just part of the investigation, which is going to be a huge one. As Sarah mentioned, there are countless actual crime scenes here. They're still trying to figure out exactly how many they are talking about. So we do expect an update on that situation later today from the RCMP and the government in Nova Scotia. And we will keep you posted on that, of course. This is Mornings with Simi. Following multiple 911 calls, Nova Scotia RCMP members responded to a firearms call to a Portapique residence in Colchester County. Now, that was a member of the Nova Scotia RCMP yesterday. He was talking about the first reports they received of what has now become one of the deadliest mass killings in Canadian history. It is a killing spree from the small community of Portapique that has left 17 people dead. Now, that includes the suspected shooter, uh, one of the victims, also a veteran member of the RCMP. So let's get the latest information on this now. We're joined by journalist Nicole Monroe. She works with the Chronicle Herald in Halifax. Good morning, Nicole. Thank you for being here. Morning. Thanks for having me. What is the latest that you're hearing about how this all got started? Um, as you can understand, the investigation still pretty early on, so there are a lot of questions that we don't really have answers to. Um, and the RCMP are holding a news conference today at 2 p.m. Um, Atlantic time, so hopefully we'll get some more answers there. Okay, so again, the initial reports, it sounds like, came in, and, and it went on for quite some time before it was resolved, didn't it? Yeah, so it, from the sounds of things, um started around 11.30 p.m. Saturday in Portapique, um, which is a small Nova Scotia community, um, and it actually ended about 12 hours later in Enfield, which is about 90 kilometers uh, away from the original point where those calls came in. 
And what kind of information uh, have has the media been provided with so far? Has it been a bit of a fight to get some details? Um, the details have been a little scarce, um, but understandably there's multiple scenes uh, across Nova Scotia that they're processing. So uh, victims found at different in different areas, um, and those scenes are taking time. So um, we don't have a lot of details as of right now, but we're hoping to get some as they come forward. Can you tell us what we've learned so far about the victims? Yeah, um, so... Uh, as, as many know, an officer uh, was killed in the line of duty, um, as well as we found out that two nurses, uh, one um, licensed nurse practitioner and um, a continuing care assistant were among those victims, uh, an elementary school teacher, um, a man that worked at the fire brigade at the airport for more than 30 years, um, a woman that was a denturist in Shubenacadie, uh, also part of the um, also part of the dance community, uh, a family of three, uh, so t- two two adults and a, a teenager, um, a, a couple that lived out in Port-a-Pic, um, another couple that was married that also was in Port-a-Pic. Um, so those details are all coming through, and it's all a lot of people um, really just wanting to talk about them uh, positively on social media and have them remembered in, in that way as opposed to as, what happened yesterday. Right. Is, is all that information, though, about the, the victims here coming from social media and, and family and loved ones talking about them? Um, it's a bit of both. So um, Vaughn Canada released the information on the continuing care assistant and the nurse. Um, and RCMP released the information, as you know, of the uh, officer that was killed. Uh, the teachers union came forward talking about the elementary school teacher. Um, and then um, actually, one of the people was my dad's cousin, so I received information from him through family um, and everyone, yeah, family members, friends, just kind of coming forward to talk about their loved ones on social media is kind of where other information is coming from. Oh, I'm so sorry about that, Nicole. I mean, it, it really does sound like, given that it was such a small community, everybody must be touched by this. Yeah, so I live in Halifax, but um, I'm actually from Truro, which, and I have a cottage out near Port-a-Pic. So um, it was started out with me reading a high school, uh, someone I went to high school with. It was their, their relatives, two of them. Um, and then it just kind of more connections kind of came through. And it's just, although Port-a-Pic is small and some people may not have known where that was before this all happened, um, it's affected a lot of Nova Scotians, um, especially those close to the community. How small is Port-a-Pic? Port-a-Pic is a very small community. I don't have those specific numbers, but it would be like, you know, everyone on the street would know each other. Um, and Truro, which is only like a 20, 25 minute drive away, those people all knew each other. I mean, people in Port-a-Pic, they go to high school in Truro, um, which is where I went to school. Um, so everyone knows each other, even though they don't live there. And what do we know at this point then, Nicole, about the person police say is responsible for this? Um, So the details are um, not great about him that we know. Um, We do know that he had a few dentist clinics in uh, HRM area, and his name was registered to a couple properties down in Portapique, but... uh, I haven't been personally focusing too much on him. That hasn't really been my angle. And I know a lot of people as well, um, although they do, there does need to be some understanding 
behind things are trying to not focus on him as much also. I can imagine. Yeah, you want to focus more on the on the victims here. So you said a press conference coming up uh, just in a couple of hours there um, and just wait for more information at this point. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I Like yesterday, they, a lot of people had questions and uh, Chris Leather, the RCMP officer, said, you know, it's it's too early. It's it's very spread out across Nova Scotia and it lasted for 12 hours. So hopefully have some more answers today at that news conference. Hopefully. All right, Nicole, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Check that date. It is April the 20th, which, of course, for 2020 means something completely different than it did, uh, you know, in years past. Let's talk about that this morning with the help of our Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, it seems kind of funny to think, doesn't it, that this time, typically, we would be going on and on and on about the controversy of using Sunset Park for the 420 celebrations. It is always the topic of conversation that leads up to today. And then, of course, what's the conversation that follows today, typically? Uh, Who's going to clean up and pay for it? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's usually the way it goes. We're not having those conversations this year because, of course like most other events, it's been cancelled. Yeah, I had quite a few emails last week, actually, from people. uh, It's like like they didn't hear the news, I guess, originally that it had been cancelled because they wanted to know, my goodness, what's going to happen? Are people going to enforce them? So I took the time to write all those people back and say, no, no, you may have missed it, but it was cancelled very early on, like more than a month ago, I would say. Yeah, I remember that too. Dana Larson, one of the organizers, came forward pretty quickly and said that this event wouldn't be happening this year, and rightfully so. I mean, they get crowds. I think last year was somewhere around 60,000 people that came out to Sunset Beach to wreck the grass and smoke some weed. So yeah. <laughs> this year, this year that won't be happening. But with that said, and maybe some, some other people will have a concern similar to this, that it's going to be a beautiful day. This is Vancouver. Are we going to have people exactly. gathering on the beach to smoke some weed? Well, it's highly likely that some people not associated with this event, but just taking it upon themselves may still go down to Sunset Beach for, I don't know, tradition's sake to go hang out with their buddies and break those social distancing rules and celebrate their own little 420 events. So police are aware of that and they said that they will be monitoring the beach to make sure that they're reminding people again that there are social distancing rules and I guess bring your own joint your own joint and and don't pass your joint to your buddy I guess is how you would apply social distancing rules to 420 I don't know I guess so and I and I I do hope they (laughs) I do hope they monitor that because I mean yesterday the weather was quite nice and and took a drive down that way it happened to be on my way home um, and it was busy and so I thought boy Mm. I don't know what are you gonna do on a day like today when normally people would be gathering well and typically organizers would be crazy to see the weather that they're going to see today. I mean, beautiful, sunny, 17 degrees. This is perfect weather for that event when often, you know, it does take place in April. It can be plagued with rain and that causes a lot of problems for organizers. And plus, you know, it's just not great for any kind of outdoor events. So, you know, they'd probably be overjoyed to see the weather that they're going to see today when, ironically, the event, the event has been has been cancelled in the end. But if you still do want to celebrate 420, they're doing a virtual 420 instead. So I guess there's some pot TV channels and so forth that 
you can right. uh, go and watch things happen online. I, I imagine they'll okay. have musicians and everything else. So they are doing it like many other events. They've moved it online. They're doing sort of a virtual thing instead. All right. Some other events, though, that we kind of have gotten used to, part of the fabric of Vancouver. Uh, the Sun Run was supposed to be yesterday. I didn't realize that. I kept thinking it was still coming up. Yeah, and this one's a bit controversial, too. Uh, I have some friends that were supposed to run in the Sun Run, and they kept saying, you know, what's going on here with the refunds? Because from what we know, the Sun Run will not be offering refunds, and they're offering a fee that you can pay in addition to the entry that you've already paid that you will not be getting back in order to transfer your registration to next year. So people are going, hold on a second here. Not only am I not getting my money back for the event that I'm no longer able to run in because organizers canceled it, of course, because of COVID-19, but now you're going to charge me to transfer that registration to next year, too. Yeah, that doesn't seem So a lot of people were... Yeah, we're upset about that yesterday, and I saw a lot of chatter online about it as well. Uh, one fellow wrote, I hope you spent our entry fee wisely. Uh, another person wrote, you know, please donate the funds to first responders, saying that they wouldn't purchase from one of the sponsors of the event because they're so upset about how things have, have gone with these, you know, the lack of a lack of refunds. But I think the other thing that people are upset about, because, you know, the entry fee, look, it was... If, 50 bucks for the early bird registration, 60 bucks plus GST and fees for the regular price registration. So, you know, no one's breaking the bank here, but I think it was the lack of transparency with Sunrun organizers. People were saying, well, reach out to us and tell us what's going on. You know, you said there'd be more information in the future and we haven't received any more information in the future. You said there'd be a t-shirt at least. I mean, you printed all these t-shirts, I assume. Am I even going to get my t-shirt in the mail after I spent my 50 bucks on registering for this race? Or just tell, they've heard nothing. Yeah. Just tell people like, okay, we want to roll you over for next year, but you need to reconfirm with us that you're going to do that. And if we don't hear from you, then we are going to sell that again for next year, right? Because they can't just roll everybody over because that would mean that next year sold out and nobody knew would get to participate. But yeah, communication here, yeah. I guess, would be the key. I- I'm curious to hear how next year's event goes because I think a, a few people have been burned by the communication. Look, everybody gets it that events are being canceled. We know that events are being canceled. We know that some tickets, you know, weren't sure there's going to be some issues getting your money back. But you just you hope for good communication with the yeah. organizers, and then you don't you're not left with that sour taste in your mouth, right? Right. So speaking of, so those are spring events that have been canceled. Summer events we're hearing are also going to be canceled. We know pride parades not mm-hmm. going to happen uh, from what we heard. And also doesn't sound like much of a PNE either. Yeah, and this one's kind of a bummer for for families. And I, I mean, I remember being a kid, Simi, growing up here and going to the PNE or going to Playland. I mean, that was tradition in Vancouver. Yeah. And you might only go because, you know, you and I both grew up in, in the suburbs. I grew up in, in North Delta. So maybe it's only every other summer that you actually oh, no, get your we parents every to year. drop you off. In the, oh, did you? Every year. Yeah. Uh, see, tradition. It was My grandmother tradition. couldn't even speak English and she had to go every year to the PE and she had to buy tickets for that PE prize home. She loved it. She looked forward to it every year. Uh, we're actually going to be talking with Laura Balance about that, Nikki. So thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Realistically, uh, we will not be having those big events where people gather together this summer. This is going to be, um, that is a, a, a much riskier prospect than ever before. Now that, of course, is Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about the summer that we have ahead of us. Today, of course, is 420, April the 20th. And normally we would see and be talking about the tens of thousands of people who would be gathering this afternoon just here in Vancouver. 
But COVID-19 has changed everything. The Peony is an iconic Vancouver attraction, but this is going to be a pretty tough year for them. So we wanted to talk more about what that may look like. Is there still going to be some form of a Peony? Joining us now, representing the Peony, is Laura Balance. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me on. How long have you been preparing for kind of what Dr. Henry had to say this weekend? Well, I think, um, you know, like every event in this country, we've been uh, modeling different scenarios as we've moved through the last five to six weeks as as a nation, to be honest. I think what seemed um, very far away for many of us um, a month and a half or two months ago uh, really began to hit home. And as we work through the process of uh, modeling different scenarios, not only for our fair, but for Playland and our year-round events. Um, I think that the organization itself has always proven its resiliency, and I think that the group of people in charge of the PE have done a great job anticipating where we might be going. But I don't think there's anybody that can say that they truly have the crystal ball on on what was going to happen or what is going to happen. So we continue through the process of trying to look at what might be possible and where we might be able to go from here. Do we know what that might look like? Like, are we still talking about some form of a PE this summer? I think we're looking at what might be possible in trying to anticipate where the um, health advice might be four and a half months from now. So, you know, the PE is truly British Columbia's end of summer tradition. Uh, for 110 years, we, we have marked that end of summer uh, for our province. And trying to um, work with what is best practices and protocols today may look very different four and a half months from now. But I think it's fair to say that we recognize that the fair as we've known it it will not be possible in 2020. And so whether or not there is the ability to, um, you know, put together something that does look different, I think that's what we're really looking at now. And I'm very hopeful for because, you know, the peony for a lot of us represents that end of summer tradition. It's Mm. candy floss, mini donuts and roller coasters. But I think it's really important to recognize that it also is the largest employer of youth in this province. It's 9,500 direct and indirect jobs. It's $200 million in economic spinoff into our region, 85 of that for the fair alone. So there is big impact and there's big implication. And I know from working there for so many years, the implication to small business in this province, there's so many families that depend on the fair and and also because my job in, in working with all of you, I get to work with these young people that depend on the fair. And I can tell you, Simi, that they've been calling me, they've been calling my coworkers at the PE by the hundreds, uh, asking for us to try and, and come up with something so that they can uh, get some right. employment this year. So is it possible then to kind of push these decisions off for another month or two and maybe a scaled down version? Like, what are we looking at here? I think that's, you know, we're hoping that we might, uh, as the world continues to change day by day and hour by hour, we might be able to 
uh, envision some way to put forward something. It'll be a different something than, than what we've known, but something that will allow us to still employ people and to generate that economic impact and to generate those jobs for families across BC. And so that's that's what we're working for. I should say it's very important. We're not going to go against health advice. We're going to work in lockstep with, with health authorities and government but I think we need to do our obligation as an entity is to is to look at what might be possible, right? And and be hopeful for that. There, there's really no blueprint for this, is there, Laura? Because like all the theme parks all over the world, Disneyland, Disney World, Universal, you name it, even they haven't come up with a way to open while maintaining social distancing. One hundred percent. And you know there is no blueprint. You are entirely correct. We are doing the best we can, just like every other event. It's really important for people to know that the PE is a not-for-profit organization. So we don't receive government subsidy. And in fact, we invest about $7 million back into our site every year. Um, and so there is no ability to, um, you know, there is no stopgap as far as subsidy. And so we're hopeful to come come forward with something that will allow us to remain resilient. We are very focused on that. I can tell you that. The organization itself um, believes that. And and I know in my heart we have survived the Great Depression. We've survived two world wars. And, and following those wars, we've been the place where British Columbia has come back to wrap its arms around each other and celebrate. And I can tell you that this is a scrappy group of people. We are not going to allow COVID to take us down. And we have heard, I spent all weekend taking phone calls and emails from people that associate me personally with the fair from every corner of this province who who are saying that they, they've heard the news and they want us to keep fighting. And, and that is our commitment to, to the people of British Columbia. We're all the right. oldest event in this province and we're the largest we're the biggest ticketed event and we're going to continue to fight to be that for the next 110 years. So that means what starting today, the planning begins for some kind of scaled down socially distanced version. I can tell you that the planning has been going on about 18 hours a day, every day for the last six weeks. And like the rest of the world, as things change, that plan needs to change. And, and we've been working hard at that. We are hopeful today, uh, certainly when we heard Dr. Henry's comments on the weekend, uh, I think the reality that, that the fair as we've known it was not going to, to be able to um, come to fruition this year. I personally, I, I felt we were four and a half months away, so, so there was four and a half months potentially, uh, or at least several weeks uh, to, to in re-envision where we might get. Right. But hearing those comments, I think the reality hit hit all of us um, that we would not be able to stage the fair, even with uh, current social distancing protocols. So now we have to work on that plan. I don't want to call it a plan B because it's probably plan Y by now. <laughs> so when would you normally start hiring? When would all of the ramping up normally oh, begin? It would all begin now. We would be in the last week, we would have uh, certainly hired about 1,500 people for Playland. And keep in mind, although we're best known for the fair, we, we operate three very different business streams. And one of them is Playland Amusement Park, which is such an employ- important employer in this province as well and is the largest family event in the province. 
And so uh, Playland would be uh, on the verge of opening, um, and we would also be simultaneously hiring another 1,000 people in, the, in this week uh, for fair time as we move towards that 9,500 um, direct and indirect jobs as we, we move into the summer. So those things are all on hold. So when do you think there might be an update? You know, I wish I could say. Uh, I wish there was a timeline, and I think that's the uncertainty. I, I get to work with a lot of the greatest events in this country, and I think finding that moment uh, where you can actually make a definitive decision is what we're all struggling with, And um, because nobody wants to cancel their event, and so many of them, particularly in this province, are self-funded. They're either funded through small private business or they're funded through... Uh, great not-for-profits, and so the event is what funds the year-round operations. And so these um, organizations, large and small, are incredibly challenged because it won't. It's not a matter of just postponing the event. In, in many cases, it is the lifeblood mm-hmm. of that organization. And so I think everybody is trying to find what um, what things could be. And then to pick a date where we go, okay, now we have to go to this secondary plan. Because if we knew that the world was going to come back on July 1st or August 1st or whatever that date was, it would make it much easier to plan. But as we all know, it's very fluid. Oh, that is so true. All right, Laura, we'll keep in touch then. Thank you. And thank you guys for your support and all your listeners. We know that we've been partners with this station for back since since day one. And so we thank you and we thank your listeners for their incredible support. Well, people want to see that PE in one form or another. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Laura, thank you. Laura Balance, Media thank Relations you. with the PE. It is not uh, gone. It was not cancelled for this year, but it won't be the fair that we're used to seeing. So how do you make that happen? This is Mornings with Simi. So we were just talking with Von Palmer of the Vancouver Sun about the press conference that Mike Farnworth, the public safety minister, had yesterday. This had to do with something that really gets under people's skin, something that just drives us crazy during this time. That is people who are reselling medical supplies and they're really ratcheting up those prices. So what did he have to say about that? Have a listen. We've been fielding complaints through partners at Consumer Protection BC of instances of price gouging for the things that we may require to stay healthy. That's why, effective immediately, the province is enabling police to issue $2,000 violation tickets for these shameful practices. For price gouging and the reselling of medical supplies and other essential goods, during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Now, we've heard lots of stories about this, right? We've seen Richmond RCMP pull people over. We've seen Delta police arrest people or charge people, I should say, as a result of this. And it just bugs us to no end when we know that personal protective equipment is so important right now and that there is a shortage uh, sometimes for frontline workers that somebody would think that this is a good time to mark the price up. Uh, so now, as you heard the public safety minister say there, they're giving municipal the ability to crack down on that and levy $2,000 fines right away on the spot to people who are busted for this. Now, Rob Gioloretto is the CEO of Consumer Protection BC, and he explained what the role of that organization is in counteracting price gouging. We're here to take 
people's complaints. We're here to be the intake vehicle for all the complaints that people are seeing around the province that would be considered price gouging. And price gouging, as defined by the minister himself, is just really an unconscionable price in relationship, in relation rather to other sales prices of similar goods in similar areas through similar transactions. And we've been seeing quite a few of uh, that kind of marketplace activity, unfortunately, um, over the last couple of weeks. All right. So just how big of a problem is price gouging? Well, he says they've received about 1,500 complaints over the past six weeks. Over 600 of those are specific to personal protective equipment and to paper products, uh, most notably, of course, toilet paper. And I think when you start to see the complaints and read the complaints that we get, these are really difficult human times. And certainly when you see about uh, care workers who are taking care of elderly people in their homes um, who have compromised immune systems and retailers are charging them, uh, you know, $400 for uh, 50 masks, those types of things just can't happen. And so it's certainly a, a, enough of a, of, a, of a problem in the marketplace. And we really do congratulate um, our provincial partners in, in taking this step so that we can try to eliminate it. All right. So here's the thing for you. If you are out shopping and you see something that you go, you know what, that is not the regular price. Like that looks like price gouging to me. What can you do about that? Okay, here's what you do. You go on to Consumer Protection BC's website, okay? And you report the following information. Your name and contact information, so for possible follow-up. The type of product being sold, the new price, and if you're able to find it, the previous price as well, if possible. Any evidence that you may have, if possible, such as a picture or a receipt. So in other words, if you see something that you think is being uh, is price gouging, then take a picture of it for sure. And then also include the name of the business and the address, including the city. And then they will uh, pass that information on the website, consumerprotectionbc.ca. And I'm sure there are lots of those types of issues out there. If you've seen anything like that too, let me know too, so I can pass that on to people. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We are expecting a statement from TransLink this morning on the news that potentially layoffs are looming. Uh, We're going to talk more about that now with the help of Gavin McGarrigal, who is the Western Regional Director of Unifor, representing many of the bus drivers, of course, at Coast Mountain Bus Company. Gavin, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Simi. Now, you gave us a bit of a warning about this on Friday when we talked to you about layoffs of up to 70%. Are you still hearing that number? Yeah, I mean, the employer hasn't been very specific about numbers at all. They presented us late last week with a document that would uh, seek to clear the way, uh, relax requirements under the Labour Code and the collective agreement, uh, but it would clear the way for really unlimited layoffs. And uh, they, they weren't specific <clears throat> about uh, the exact numbers, but certainly uh, when I spoke to uh, Kevin Desmond uh, last week, uh, that was uh, the range of options he was looking at. And we're hearing from various managers across the system uh, that it could be a 1,000 or more uh, transit workers that uh, receive layoff notices uh, either today or this week. So you have gotten no updates since then? I mean, we talked to you Friday. You sent out the memo to employees uh, last night. You're telling me there's been no updates since then? 
No, there hasn't. As I said, we got this document late uh, late last week. Uh, we, you know, ended up uh, discussing it amongst ourselves, and, and at the end of the day, said, you know, we're not going to cooperate in this budget fiasco. This is something that the senior levels of government need to sort out. They need to sort it out yesterday. I mean, there is simply uh, no way in the middle of this pandemic that we should be talking about laying off any transit workers at all because of the social distancing requirements. Uh, there are less people on the buses, so you need every available safe bus on the road to protect the driver and the passenger. So we informed the employer and senior executives uh, on Saturday afternoon that that we weren't going to cooperate, and in fact, we were going to use uh, every means possible to, to block any talk of layoffs, and uh, we're going to reserve all of our options. So uh, we're doing that, and uh, you know, it's time to get this uh, off the table. You know, it's interesting. You see the federal government, Sammy, uh, talking about uh, you know uh, millions of dollars that are going to private companies such as Air Canada's and, and other through the wage subsidy, and yet we're sitting here in the middle of this uh, pandemic talking about laying off public sector workers, uh, workers who in fact are transporting the very workers that we all need to make sure that uh, we can get through this pandemic. Whether it's people needing health care, people needing groceries, people uh, that are you know doing cleaning and a whole bunch of other uh, essential uh, jobs. We you know we represent people at Kruger in New Westminster who make toilet paper. Uh, you know a lot of people don't have options other than the bus. If there's no bus, they don't get around. If they don't get around, they don't provide the service to the people who need it. And this whole thing uh, just becomes more dangerous for everyone, so, both for the bus drivers who will then have to face uh, more crowded buses and the passengers who will also uh, have a tough time getting on a bus that has proper social distancing. So this is just uh, a really irresponsible move. And, uh, you know, I don't think the public is interested in any kind of a political bun fight between the different levels of government. It's simply get it done, get it done now and take this threat off the table immediately. But do you do expect those layoff notices to happen today? That's what we've been uh, advised by the employer, that uh, that's what they're working on, uh, that they've uh, purchased, uh, you know, okay. thousands of registered mail envelopes ready to go. And, you know, we'll, we'll see uh, what those notices look like and, okay. and whether or not we believe they're in compliance with the law. And, and we'll, we'll take further action from there. All right, Gavin, thank you. Yeah, thanks again, Simi. Gavin McGarrigal with the update there, the Western Regional Director of Unifor representing Coast Mountain bus drivers expecting layoff notices today. We will have more for you. TransLink statement expected on that in the next couple of hours as well. Still ahead for us in the next hour. Well, let's talk about a story that you may have heard a bit about over the weekend, that more than a dozen homeless advocates were arrested for occupying the Lord Strathcona Elementary School that's near Hastings and Princess, uh, just off downtown Vancouver here. Wanted to talk more about that. Why did it happen? What was the purpose? So joining us now is Isabel Krupp, who is a member of the Red Braid Alliance for Decolonial Socialism, who was there this weekend. Isabel, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simi. So what was the purpose of this? So the occupation of Strathcona Elementary School, not the whole school, just one of the buildings, which has been shuttered for more than a year now, is uh, it was part of a broader movement, a squat to survive movement, where uh, homeless leaders, people who are living on the streets, in shelters, in SROs, in modular housing, have come together to stand up for themselves so that they can... Uh, fight back collectively and survive this COVID-19 pandemic because we know in those conditions uh, people who are unhoused or underhoused really aren't able to physically distance, aren't able to do what's needed, what the government says we need to do to look after ourselves and each other. So uh, the Squat to Survive movement launched a couple weeks ago on April 1st with a takeover of an empty publicly owned building in Surrey 
and the uh, police evicted that squat after only four hours. So what happened over this weekend in, in downtown Vancouver, uh, where we were able to hold the building for, uh, what, three times that, uh, that length of time, and were eventually uh, evicted and forced out and dragged out by the Vancouver police. Uh, those of us who were inside, the homeless leaders who uh, who led this action, counted as a victory. Because even though we were forced out, we've uh, had a, a message heard loud and clear. Uh, we've learned valuable lessons and we're going to continue to organize because that's the only way that people, that uh, poor and homeless people can actually survive this crisis. Now, Isabel, is that the best way, though, to get attention at this point, given that you had to, the police come in, as you said, you know, you're arrested, you're pulled out of there. That's a lot of close contact. And given that what we know right now is that shouldn't be happening. Yeah, I agree with you. So the response from the police, the response from the city, the response from the government, which says it's looking after vulnerable communities, is the wrong response and did put people in danger. That's what put people in danger, not the action, not the self-activity of uh, people who are leading this charge. But did you think they were just supposed to let you sit there in the building then? Absolutely. So uh, the the legal argument that we are making, the legal defense, uh, is a Section uh, 7 charter defense. So the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is the highest law of the land, and Section 7 of the Charter guarantees people right to security of the person. Uh, so the, uh, there's a, a balance of convenience, to use legal terms, between the charter right to security and the uh, legal property rights of the, of the property owner. In this case, that's the city. Uh, so we're saying that uh, people's right to security, and we know it's safer to be inside than out on the street, especially right now. Right, but you, you mentioned... Right to security is, you mm-hmm, mentioned that is, uh, some of the people in the protest, though, are in modular housing, are in SROs. Isn't that the way to go? Like, are there not negotiations happening with the city and the province to help people already? So we need enough uh, indoor spaces, enough real homes for everyone who needs one right now, whether that's people on the streets or in SROs or mods, which are just hot houses for COVID-19. There's no uh, ventilation. People are crammed together like sardines. Everyone I know who lives in modular housing, including people who were at the squad over the weekend, say, we know if one if one of us gets it, we're all going to get it because people in those uh, situations... Uh, Everyone I know who lives in modular housing says it's not it's not a home. It's really just homelessness behind doors. It feels like living in jail. Uh, so that's not real housing. That's not what people but, need. People need homes right now more than ever. But is squatting in a school real housing? Uh, it could be turned into real housing. Uh, people are able to self-organize. People are able to make democratic decisions together. People are able to enforce their own rules uh, in order to keep themselves safe. So yeah, it could be turned into the housing that people need. Uh, and it could be used as a pressure point to push for what people need as well. Uh, but I think, I, I think the best way to look at this action over the weekend is not actually as a protest but as a survival action, because yes, it is safer in Lord Strathcona School, uh, it is safer indoors than it is at Oppenheimer Park. Walk down the street of the downtown east side right now and look around. Are people able to physically distance? Nobody is able to physically distance. There's no washrooms, there's no hand, nowhere to wash your hands. Uh, no matter what uh, the mayor of Vancouver says, people are not able to follow precautions. So yes, people need to do what they need to do to stay safe. And right now, that means taking over a vacant building. So what is the next step then, Isabel? This is the twice now you said that this has happened. You've clearly got attention now after this latest one at Strathcona Elementary. What is the end result here? If you want want the city's attention, the province's attention, and you've got it, what do you want? So it's not just about getting attention. It's about taking action ourselves to keep ourselves safe. Uh, but the demands of the movement are homes now, which uh, means hotel rooms or a- empty uh, 
uh, buildings for everybody who needs one, people, including people in mods and SROs, including women fleeing violence, including people in uh, cramped, overcrowded conditions on reserve, homes for everyone. There's thousands of hotel rooms empty across the region that could be immediately uh, used for housing people who need homes. Uh, second demand is to stop policing the crisis. So right now for poor, for low-income communities, it's business as usual in terms of criminalizing the poor. The cops roll down the block. They uh, tell people to move along. Uh, when you say, where are we supposed to move? The cops shrug their shoulders. So people are being just chased around the city, uh, chased, uh, chased to nowhere, just uh, displaced constantly, and that's not okay. Uh, people are being locked up uh, for survival crimes, um, uh, for drug use, and so on. Uh, uh, this is unacceptable now more than ever because we know jails are, are just going to be a site of transmission throughout this crisis. And uh, finally, we're uh, uh, demanding uh, health care and real safe supply for all. That means the safe supply needs to be accessible um, and now, again, now more, more than ever because people can't physically distance without the health care and without the safe supply that they need. All right, Isabel, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you, Simi. Nice that is Isabella Krupp. Uh, she's with the Red Braid Alliance for Decolonial Socialism. They have been having these protests. The latest one, uh, a dozen homeless advocates or so were arrested for occupying Strathcona Elementary uh, in downtown Vancouver. And they said they're doing it to point out the problems with the pandemic situation and the homeless people uh, in downtown Vancouver. And in fact, all over Metro Vancouver, this has been an issue. We'll be following up on that for sure. That is the second uh, such protest that they've had. Uh, We'll let you know what else happens.